Uh, as we come through Galatians, Galatians 3, this section of it, it is a reminder to us of something that every parent and every police officer knows, but it, most Christians tend to forget. And that is that rules and laws do not produce the kind of obedience we desire out of them, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean that rules and laws are pointless. Uh, obviously, they reveal the character of the family that creates those rules. Uh, one of the things I love doing when I go to people's homes is, you know, you often see like in their kitchen or in their bathroom or something, they'll have like in the kitchen, mom, mom's kitchen commandments or something, or in the bathroom, say thank you, please. We always put these rules up. It always shows kind of what, what the families value, you know. Uh, or we have laws in our society that tell us how to live. So those things are important. They reveal to us the character of families. They reveal to us the expectations of society. Uh, they provide boundaries. They communicate how we as individuals are to interact with us, with each other. But the big problem is that none of those laws, none of those rules have the ability to create, generate the obedience they command. I mean, wouldn't that be nice if, if all we had to do to get the obedience we, we desired is just create a rule and people would obey it, right? But that's not how it works. As a matter of fact, it tends to be the opposite effect sometimes. My wife and I joke, or I joke with my wife, I said the world can be divided in two people, and you can readily tell who those two people are simply by when they walk past a sign that says wet paint. Half of them will listen. The other half will kind of test to see if it actually is wet. Sometimes when there's a rule, it actually elicits the opposite response. We try to bend it or break the rule. Now, uh, as we have been learning through the book of Galatians, and particularly in chapter 3, what we have been seeing is that Paul has been talking about the reality of, of presenting the gospel, this gospel of free grace, that it's not about merits, it's not about earning it, it's not about rule keeping, it's about the promise of God. And the fact that we have this compulsion in our culture, whether or not you are a Christian or whether or not someone you go to church regularly, there's this kind of sense that we ought to be doing what's right, that we should be doing the right thing. And, and that's great so long as it goes, but it falls apart when we think that also applies to God, as if we can earn somehow to be in the presence of a perfect being. And so Paul has been explaining the wonderful truth of the gospel, that it's free gift. It has to be. There's no other way it could be possible. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't somehow merit it, so it has to come freely. And in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, he reminded the Galatians that this was in fact their experience. They had been so captivated by the preaching of the gospel that it was as if they saw Jesus being crucified and their lives were radically changed. And then in verses 6 through 14, he goes through Scripture and proves to them that that is, in fact, the case. And he uses Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish nation, that, that he didn't come because he somehow obeyed Torah and, and fulfilled it, but it was by faith. And then in verses 15 to 29, what we're going to look at this morning, Paul anticipates some arguments and tries to use just some, some good old common sense as well as Scripture to continue to reinforce this point. So Paul, at this point in chapter 3, is anticipating what his, his readers are going to say. They might say, well, faith may have been the way it worked with Abraham. That might have been good for him. But then God gave the law to Moses, so things have basically changed with God. So from now on, you need to keep these aspects of the law, you know, like the Ten Commandments. You need to abide by those. 
And it's interesting when, when people do talk about abiding by the Ten Commandments. You have probably heard people say that. Maybe you've even said it yourself. I always like to ask people, yeah, well, what are those exactly? And it's surprising how many people will fall back to behavior or like the Ten Commandments as the standard, but really don't even know what those ten are. Now, again, ultimately, that's not what we're saved by. We're saved by the merits of Christ. The point I'm trying to make is that we often feel that it's somehow what we do, our performance, that makes the difference. And so Paul begins this section with actually stating what the law won't do before he talks about what the law is. And what the law won't do, what it cannot do, what it will not do, is renegotiate the terms of God's promises to His people. That's basically what uh, verses 15 to 18 are about. And then verses 19 to 29 through the rest of the chapter is about answering the next obvious question. And the obvious question is, if God's dealings with humanity is entirely based on faith, on grace, on what Jesus has done, then what's the point of the law to begin with? And what's the point of the law for God's people? But more importantly, if God relates with us, if a relationship with God is restored on the basis of faith and His grace, then what's the point of His law for all humanity to begin with? Why do we need it? And that is a really important question. As we're going to see, faith and law, faith and behavior are not antithetical, as you might be thinking as we've studied, as Paul's made this point so strongly. Today, he kind of balances that out and helps us to understand the relationship. So first, uh, let's look at the first point, the enduring promises of the gospel in verses 15 and 18. Now, you might be thinking as you're looking there, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're, we're if we're talking about Abraham, how come you're smuggling in this gospel language? I know that the gospel is actually a New Testament thing. The reality is that the gospel is not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel, God's gracious mercy towards sinful humanity and His giving us salvation purely because of His character, is actually the thread that goes through the entire of the Old and New Testaments. So when I say the enduring promises of the gospel, and then really we're going to be talking about Abraham, I'm not trying to smuggle something in there. It's actually there. The reality is that's what this whole book's all about. This book is about the gospel. It is not just what's contained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where it explicitly God's plan becomes aware. We become a crystal clear aware of that, and then the rest of the New Testament explains that, but it's all through the Old Testament because it's God's promise. And the promise that Paul is referring to here, uh, it, it uh, appears in two parts in Genesis. Write down, this down if you're a note taker, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Um, keep in mind, uh, a little lesson in redemptive history, God creates everything. It's fantastic. Genesis 1 and 2, it's exactly the way it was. God's world, God's people under His law, His word commanding them, them believing Him. It all goes sideways in Genesis 3. It all goes really gets shot and destroyed to the point where the world is so corrupt, he has to start all over. He's looking for a man, a people, to bring about his promised Messiah. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that's the plan. He finds Abram, and he says, now I'm going to be able to make my promises come through Abram, who Abram becomes Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. From the Jewish people comes the Savior, and then the gospel spreads to the world. But it had to start with somebody, and Abraham is the one in faith believing God's character. So the promises he's referring to are found in Genesis 12 and 15. 
Now, the law that he's also referencing here is the law of Moses that was given at Sinai in 1445 B.C., roughly. Now, if you know anything about our history, that is about 400 years after the promise that God gave to Abraham, or Abram, in Genesis 12 and 15. So, 400 years after God makes a promise to Abram of what he's going to do, he brings in the law of Moses. See, Paul is saying that if the promise of God made to Abraham came centuries earlier before the law was even introduced, how can it be superior to the promise? So he opens up in verse 15 and says, look, even in your own laws, your own human laws, once a contract is ratified, once a contract has entered into by both parties, it's a done deal. The contract, the stipulates of the contract are in stone. You can't change that. How much more than if God enters into contract with people and doesn't change it at all or modify or add to it for four centuries? How then is the law somewhat superior to God's promise? The answer is obvious. It's not. The contract's binding. Nothing can change that. And that's the Greek word that's being used here for covenant. Also be translated as will, as we would use it in last will or and testament. It's a contract. And so Paul is trying to reason with them that no, 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 the law is not superior. The contract was a done deal with Abraham. As a matter of fact, the law didn't show up for 400 years after the fact. So if they thought, oh, so that changes things. Now, if we want the blessings of Abraham, the way we get those is we obey the law. No, is what Paul is saying. That's not how that works. And in verse 17, it says, the original contract, the promise of God given to humanity, was ratified by God himself. That's what he says in verse 17 there at the very end of it. Um, God does not annul a covenant or a promise previously ratified by God so as to make it void. So what we need to do is we want to look at the ratification of that contract because it is mind-blowing. So keep your finger in Galatians. Go with me to Genesis chapter 15, first book of the Bible, all the way to the left. Genesis 15. And we are going to read this. Now keep in mind... As I read this, we are reading about a contract. The way, you, the way we enter into contracts today is relatively easy, right? You just sign on the dotted line, all parties involved, it gets notarized or whatever, it's done. We're talking ancient Near East, completely different culture over three millennia ago. So as we read this, be prepared to be confused or startled. Here we go. Starting in verse 9 of Genesis 15. God said to Abram, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, basically on one side and the other from each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So, so he got these animals, they cut them in two, put half of the carcass here, half of the carcass there. That's what's going on. And when the birds of prey come in to eat them, Abraham chases them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. We'll end there. God is getting into a contract, a promise, a covenant with Abram. I want to point some things out here that should be interesting. Notice when God gets into a contract with Abram, he says, I want you to grab me some animals. Get me a a dove, get me a goat, get me a lamb, get me a heifer. By the way, notice these are the exact same animals that the book of Leviticus would say are the appropriate sacrificial animals to approach God. This is before the nation of Israel. This is before all of the the sacrificial system. God is anticipating what he's going to do. He says, grab these certain animals, cut them in half, place them on side, side by side. And then you notice and you catch in verse 13 that God gives Abram a prophecy of what's going to happen to his descendants. He talks about the, he gives them the prophecy about their time and slavery in the nation of Egypt. This is fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 11. And then in verse 14 of this chapter, God gives Abram another prophecy, and he prophesies to Abram of the great exodus of his people from out from under Egypt, and this was fulfilled in Exodus 12, verses 33 to 42. And then finally in verse 16, God gives Abram one last prophecy, a prophecy of of, of Abram's descendants coming back to conquer the land of Cana. This was fulfilled in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. So God is saying, let's get into a contract, let's get into a covenant, a promise, and I'm going to give you a sense of how all this is going to play out. You'll be long dead, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the next 400 years with your people. He says, they're going to come back and, and take over this land that I am promising you. It's not the time yet, because the iniquity says, you see that in verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites and, and the Amorites was a generic term to refer to all the people who lived in Canaan at the time, the Hittites, the Amalekites. It's kind of like we might say um, Asians. Asians would refer to Japanese, Chinese, Korean, all the people in that area. So it says the Amorites, their iniquity is not yet full. So part of this process is where I'm allowing in my grace for these wicked people to repent. But I know they're not. And when their wickedness hits that boiling point, your people are going to come back and take the land from them. So God causes Abram to have a a vision, this deep sleep, and then God walks through the carcasses of the animals. I say, I, I I didn't read anything about God walking through there. Well, in the vision, Abram sees a torch and a fire pot that moves through the carcasses. Now, to us, that's very confusing, but in ancient Near East, the Mesopotamia, that was a proper symbol for royalty, for, represented heat, represented power, represented light, it represented deity. And so, with a vision that Abram has is very appropriate for his culture and time, he sees God walking through the carcasses. 
And, and the, 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 the agreement is, if I don't keep my promise to you and to your descendants and to that one particular descendant who will be a blessing to the world, which is Christ, Galatians 3.16 tells us, if I don't keep that promise, may it be to me as it is to what happened to these animals. Now, you might say, well, where did you get that? Because that wasn't in Genesis that I read. So, this is where in Scripture interprets Scripture. Jeremiah 34, 18, God is talking about another covenant He had made with His people, and His people had broke the covenant. So, He says to them, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut in two and pass between its parts. So here we have, back in Genesis 15, God is saying, Abram, I'm making a promise to you, and may it be to me as it was to these animals if I do not keep my promise to you. But notice something. Usually, when you get into a contract, it requires at least how many parties? At least two. In this contract, it's only God that walks between the carcasses. Abraham just watches. This is a unilateral contract that God enters into. This reveals to us, just let's talk briefly about the nature of God's promises as we see here in Genesis 15. It's completely unilateral. In other words, God made the promise all by Himself, and really in some sense even to Himself. It didn't require Abram to walk through and do anything. It was God and God alone, so His promise is unilateral. Secondly, we know that God's promises are eternal. It's an everlasting covenant because God is everlasting as well. The contract is binding so long as the people who enter the contract, the one who, who validates the contract, still there, and God is eternal. Third, it's irrevocable. God does not change His mind. It will never cease. God's character is not like our character. He doesn't have a change of opinion over time. He doesn't have to think about things over. He knows and he enters into the contract. And fourth and finally, because it depends on God and not us, it's unconditional. And we see that here in this vision. So, let's go back to Galatians. Do you see why Paul is so adamant that, that these Galatians understand that? Because something either comes by grace or works. It can't be some hodgepodge of the two. And as we establish up to this point, it's clear that no one can do the works. So it's either got to be by complete perfection of works, and there's only one person who ever did that, we'll talk about him in a little bit, or it's got to be completely by grace. It is either the giver's promise or the receiver's performance, one or the other. Now, we, we, we need to reflect on this for a little bit because this is really important. A promise, in order for a promise to be received, you just need to believe. But in order for a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed, right? So, so in order for a promise to bring a result, you just have to believe the promise. In order for a law to bring a result, it has to have obedience. So imagine if I had an uncle and I, my, I said, Jeff, my uncle wants to give you $10 million. All you need to do is, is meet with him and he'll give you the money. The only way Jeff would fail to get that $10 million is if he doesn't believe me. He says, yeah, right, I, I get out of here. And he goes home. That's the only way Jeff would fail to get that $10 million. But if I said, Jeff, my uncle wants to meet you and wants to give you the inheritance of $10 million, he just asks that you take care of him in his old age. Well, in that case, Jeff can get the $10 million as long as he fulfills the requirements of the contract. 
So on the one hand, a promise to be, uh, create a result just needs to be believed. You just show up and the money's his. But a law has to be obeyed to produce a result. In this case, he has to fulfill the requirements of the contract to get the money. Now, God's covenant was so important to his character that in the vision, as we talked about, he said, I will die before I do not make good on my promises to you. That's what Genesis 15, 17 to 18 says. God's saying, I will die, be it to me as it is to these carcasses, if I fail to live up to my promise. God would rather die than break his promise to you. Of course, we know the New Testament, God did die to keep his promise to you in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. So at this point, as Paul has made really a rock-solid case, the Galatians, or at least the false teachers, must be asking themselves, look, if God never bothered to, 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 to save us through our works, why give us the law to begin with then? If it was always by faith, if the way we were going to be restored to God was through relationship because of what He has done unilaterally on our, unilaterally on our behalf, what's the point of the law in the first place then? That's an honest, reasonable question. If, if this was never about being good enough in those terms, why the law? Why such a huge component of that? Why our national life, the Jews, surrounding the law? This is a really important question that we have to understand as Christians. This is a really important question that we just have to understand. Because whether you are a Christian or not, a Christian might feel, man, I have to live up to what my faith requires of me. Uh, a non-Christian may not ask that question, but you might say things like, I, I, I know we ought to be good. We just ought to be a good kind of people. And when we fail, we feel the compulsion to somehow be different, to make amends, to be better. But that instinct, whether it be the law or our conscience, is being co-opted to serve a completely wrong purpose according to Scripture. Okay, and here, here it is. Let's unpack that. This brings us to point two. So we talked about the enduring promises of the gospel. Now we need to talk about the law itself. And, and, and I am talking about the law of God as revealed in Scripture, but I'm also referring to the law that we kind of know morally. We're going to talk on that in a little bit. So when we talk about law in the Christian church, we, we use that word a lot. Even in the New Testament, it talks about the law and the prophets. Well, what does that mean? Uh, it means three different things. When you think about the law, the law in the Old Testament means three different things. There's three different aspects to it. So, for example, on the screens we have, there's the ceremonial aspects of the law. So, these refer to the, the sacrificial system and the priestly duties and, and how you don't do certain things on certain days. It's all about ritual purity. How do an unclean people, how are we supposed to be clean enough to come to God? Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 22. Those are the ceremonial aspects of, of the law, right? Leviticus is big on that. Then there's the civil aspect of the law. The civil aspect of the law was those laws uniquely given to a people who were under the governance of a deity, a theocracy in other words. So those laws dictated warfare. How could they go to war? How could they not go to war? What justified it? it those laws dictated how children related with parents and, and what parents could do to, for punishment and all these kinds of things. And, and you see that in Deuteronomy 20 and 21. Then there's the moral aspect of the law, what we're most familiar with, which is the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. 
So when you read the law in the Bible, it can refer to one, two, or all three of those aspects of the law. And this isn't um, just what we have in the Old Testament. We have this in our culture as well, right? So you have criminal law, you have civil law, you have federal law, you have state law. So we have different nuances. The point is, the law is not some one-dimensional thing. It encompasses so much more. So why do I make the case for that? because of this amazing, mind-blowing statement in Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. What Jesus was talking about, every aspect, the ceremonial, the civil, the moral aspect of the law, every jot and tittle, I came to fulfill the law. Now, the book of Moses, the entire book of Moses is entirely caught up with the topic of how Christ fulfilled the moral and ceremonial law. So they are no longer necessary. Because of what Christ has done and the gospel spreads throughout the world and it's not locked into a particular ethnic or national group, the civil law is no longer applicable. So all the law has been done away with. So when you read law and scriptures, it means those things. But here's the thing we need to understand even more. None of those laws, whether they're ceremonial, civil, or moral, were ever intended to communicate to individuals about salvation. Do you know that? None of those laws were intended to communicate about salvation. Every one of them were intended to communicate sin to us. In other words... The law's main purpose, and now I'm mixing categories a little bit, not just the the ceremonial, moral, or civil law of Scripture, but even the kind of conscience that we have that is a gift from God. The law's main purpose is to show us our problem. The law's main purpose is to show us that we are lawbreakers and we cannot be our own solution that we cannot uphold God's demands. The law's job was to push us, force us to see our need of a Savior. It was never intended to say, you screwed up, try better, you screwed up, you tried better, you screwed up, tried better, there it is, try better. That was never the point. But how many times is that what we do? Whether you're a Christian or not. I should know better than that. I'm always surprised when even in my own heart where I hear other people say, I can't believe I did that. Well, the Bible says you can do that and so much more because you're really wicked, right? But we're surprised when we do things because we don't recognize the depravity in our own hearts. The Bible knows it very well, right? I remember reading Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, about his time in the the death camps of Auschwitz and just how appropriate and civilly respectable people became animals when you took away all the accoutrements of civil society and the true heart of man came bursting out as a brutal beast the law's point wasn't to say just be more just be better just do better it was to crush us to the point where we say i cannot do this and the law says that's right You cannot. That's exactly why I'm sending my son. And that's why when Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it, is such an astounding statement. 
Even in our, our pluralistic society, um, we view things, so many things so relatively. Even our view of law is relative, isn't it? Right? What's our, what's our symbol of law and justice? Blind woman with what? Sword and scales, right? And because the idea is that if there's enough evidence, if there's enough that shows that I'm good to outweigh the bad, I'm all right. But if there's more bad than good, then I'm in trouble. Right, so even our understanding of law, because we are living in a fallen world, is relative. That's not God's economy. God's economy, law, righteousness, is more like a chain that connects God to man. It connects us. Now, how many links need to break before the chain's worthless? Just one. And it doesn't matter if it's at the very beginning, or you're almost there to God, or right in the middle. One link breaks, and the connection's lost. Well, that's, that's pretty severe, Yeah. That's how it goes when you have a perfect, perfect being who wants to be in fellowship with us. It is not a relative scale, well, I'm good, but I'm bad, but I, uh, more is more good than bad. It is a chain, absolute chain, and one link, and it's over. The connection's lost. And that, that's just heavy. That is heavy. That's the demand of God. It's impossible for us to meet it. And God in His mercy and grace, He knows. So he says, that's why I gave you the law. I gave you the law so it would point you to Christ, point you to what you need in me. That's verse 21. So verse 21, they say, so is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And Paul says, no, I have the law. In Romans, he says the law is good. The law is perfect. The law is just. The Old Testament, they love the law. Do you know why? Because it always pushed them, pushed them to the promises of God. They never tried to live, well, most of them never tried to live by the law. They understood, it pushes me to God. That's why David loved the law. That's why Paul says the law is good. That's why we love the Old Testament, because we're being told truth. <laughs> and truth is so good for our souls. In their commentary, the New Testament use of the Old Testament, I don't normally quote long passages, but this is good. It's right from this text. Dr. Carson and Beale say this, the primary thesis of this passage is that the principle of inheritance by law is incompatible with the principle of inheritance by promise. But since the giving of the law cannot annul the prior giving of the promise, it follows that the law was not given for the purpose of providing inheritance, life, or righteousness. Here's the, the important line. A crucial distinction must be noted at this point. Paul does not say that the law as such is antithetical to the promise. Indeed, he emphatically denies such an opposition in verse 21. The antithesis, rather, between the two different means by which the inheritance might be received, as a gift or something you earned. That's the antithesis. See, we do not subscribe to the law as a system of salvation. But we ascribe to the law as the, the things that guard a life we already have in Christ. So we're not saying it's all faith. Who cares how you behave? That's not the point at all. It's just the law is no longer a system of salvation. Our system of salvation is based on Christ who did live perfectly to the law. Without the law, we wouldn't realize how much trouble we were really in and the gospel would not be good news. That's what gospel means, good news. And if you don't realize how bad the news is, you don't love how good the good news is. So verse 22, I just realized I'm already a lot of time. Verse 22 says that we are shut up by God's law, literally shut up. 
Luke 5, 6 uses the same word for a net that captures fish. Nowhere they could go. The, the net was always there. There's nowhere we could go. The law always points us that we have a need. The only power the law has is to show us we're not righteousness, but it has no power to make us so, right? And ironically, we learn this in Galatians 2, if we are trying to be righteous by our own works, by our actions, by my church attendance, by my tithing, by whatever good works I do, if we think that makes us good, we've missed the whole point of the law to begin with, Galatians 2, 18 and 19. And then Paul uses two last metaphors to make the point vivid in verse 23 and 24. It says, the law is like a jailer, it keeps you in prison, and the law is like a tutor that's constantly demanding of you. In both cases, it, it is, there's no personal relationship. There's no um, family connection. Your freedoms are restricted, and you live by either a fear of punishment or a desire for your own rewards, right? But what Paul says in, in verses 25 and following, it's so much different. In other words, any non-gospel-based way of relating to God, whether they're of the religious variety or the irreligious variety, any non-gospel way of relating with God is going to keep you in bondage, it's impersonal, and you'll always be living under a fear of punishment or a desire for your own reward, but it won't be a heartfelt love for God. Okay, let me, I'm just going to have to skip verses 26 and following, um, but let me just say this, because this is the last time we'll be in Galatians for about a month or so. The law has an important but limited role in our lives. We're going to conclude with this slide here. Three points. The law's purpose is not to give us life, but to guide us in the life we already have. Oh, the law's purpose was never to give us life, but to guide us in the life we already have. So look to God's gracious provision in Christ, not to his somber demands in the law, right? The law guides us to Christ. The law guides us to the gospel. Secondly, therefore, we must root our lives in God's promises, not God's law. This is what it means when we say this term, gospel-centered. This is what we're talking about because a focus on promise brings hope and joyful obedience. A focus on law brings despair and, and at best, coerced obedience. And then third and finally, we need to rely on and lean into the Holy Spirit for the motivation to live for the glory of God. And this is going to happen in a couple of ways. Number one, by treasuring God's promises. Yeah? By treasuring God's promises to us to combat the deceptive narr cultural narratives of our world that always says you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not doing enough. We need to treasure God's promises. And we need to experience God's presence through His Spirit and through and with His people. Those three are always going to work together. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. And that's why for us as a church, being committed together as a local church has grown more and more important. Because if there's one thing in God's wisdom, I see that the local church can be very culturally significant for us now, it is to crush the idol of autonomy and individuality that runs rampant in our world and even in our churches. Yeah. I feel a second sermon coming in, but I've already gone along on this one, so I'm going to have to land it there. Uh, next week, we are going to start celebrating Advent. Tonight is, is, is really kind of the precursor to that as we have our, our Thanksgiving soup dinner. If you have not been to one before, if you're new to the church, this is a fun time. I mean, okay, uh, it's just fun. Be here tonight, 6 o'clock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift, the promise of our salvation. 
we do not have to worry about our standing in you. If we are in Christ, we are made perfect. Lord, we know that is the furthest from the truth, and we know you know that. But in your mercy, you treat us as such as you continue the work of sanctification. So positionally, you've made us like Christ, and practically, you are working in our lives to make us like Christ, and you do so through your word, your spirit, and your people. I thank you for these people who do that very thing in my life. I pray we can do it in each other's. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.